off our conversation for the year, really, and I suggested that there's one thing that I think could make or break 2021 for us as Jesus followers. So here's the question that I think would help us make or break 2021. Will we see our stories as a part of the greater story that God is telling? Will we see our stories as individuals and as a community as a part of the greater story that God is telling in the world? There is a God story, and then there's so many other stories and narratives around us. Whichever story or stories you choose to live out of changes everything. So this is going to be our focus for the year, the, the big God story. This, that's what we often call it with our kids, the big God story, or in theological terms, the meta-narrative. And if we deepen our understanding of God's story or the big God story, we will better understand the role that we have to play right now, every day. So today we're going to continue to talk about the big story as a whole. There are a few different ways that scholars have talked about the, the big meta narrative as a whole, but a common framework that we really love has four parts, which make it pretty easy to remember, make it easy to see like where we're at in the story. And so these four parts are the four major plot movements of God's story. They are creation, disruption, redemption, and restoration. And I'm going to review them quickly because I'm going to confess to you right now, I have a hope that y'all could rattle these off by the end of this month, okay? That is my hope, Pastor Seth, to you, just a slight challenge. There's no prize. I know you like prizes, but I just would love for people to be able to remember it. So we're going to go through them really briefly. So follow along with me as I just describe them for us, okay? Creation. God created the world good, and when God created humans, they were very good. Disruption. Humans rejected God's leadership, and this resulted in sin and brokenness entering God's good creation and disrupting everything. Redemption. God so deeply loves humanity and creation that God is determined to redeem the evil and suffering from the disruptive force of brokenness. And finally, restoration. The restoration of all things will take place when Jesus returns to defeat sin and evil, and he will usher in his righteousness and justice. So here are these four parts, and we've got deeper descriptions of these at millcitychurch.com slash the story. That's going to be the place where you can find all the resources we have this year. You can find it from our homepage as well. Uh, but these four parts help us see the four major plot movements of the story. And we find ourselves in the messy middle of part three, the redemption story, where we are invited to join in God's redemptive story in the world today. But today I want to start with part one. I want us to talk a little bit more about creation. We're going to dig into that together. When we look around at the world today, uh, particularly in the season we're in, but I would say in a lot of seasons that we find ourselves in, it can be hard to see the goodness of God, isn't it? Sometimes we see it, sometimes it's easy, but in a lot of seasons in life, it's hard to see the goodness of God around us. It's hard to see it in other people. It's hard sometimes even to see it in ourselves. But seeing the story and how God's story starts with this important true beginning. We must look at the true beginning of the story. Let's not skip right to disruption and brokenness and all the things that were not God's heart for this world. We have to remember to keep this bookend, the beginning of the story where it's supposed to be. Because if we don't, then we might not see the world around us and other people and even ourselves for who we were truly created to be. So let's look at Genesis 1. Genesis means beginning. And I'm going to read an abbreviated version of the description of creation. And you're going to look at some art from who, guess, who is it from? The Bible Project, my friends that aren't my friends yet, but hopefully someday they will become my friends. And as you're watching this, what I want you to pay attention to and listen for 
is what is repeated the most during this description of creation, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was dark, formless, and empty. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. The, Im in, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what did you hear repeated over and over? Good, right? God said it was good. And the humans were very good. In Hebrew, this word is tov, okay? Tov. And it means something a little bit deeper than the way we might use it in English. It means beautiful, good, working the way that it should. And so you can see God calling his creation this. And it's often re reserved only for things that produce or sustain life or contain the potential for more life within it, which is what God's creation is all about. And so this Hebrew word in so many ways is focused on reproductive species, right? Plants, animals, humans. But tov can go even deeper than that. It can also be about the ways that humans can, can speak life to others. It can be like a conversation that you might say, that was a really life-giving conversation, or how it can give you life when we call the goodness out in each other. Humans are very good, or in Hebrew, tov ma'od, not only because they can produ produce life physically like the animals, but because we can care for the life on the earth, and we can enhance the, each other's lives physically, emotionally, spiritually. This is a special thing that only humans can do out of everything that God created. Humans can generate life-giving environments and relationships. And so when humans are living by God's design, we are good. We are tov. We are life bringers. We are imaging God. Just like it was said right there in uh, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when we're acting as life stealers or life takers, we're denigrating the image of God in each other in any way that we might do that. We're choosing a narrative other than the narrative of God. The concept of being made in the image of God is a pretty deep one. It separates us. It's what the thing that separates us from everything else that God created, from the animals, from the birds, the fish, the plants. 
We are able to join God's creating, right? We're creative the way that the creator created us. We are able to join God in sustaining life and to enhance life-giving environments. We get to create life-giving spaces and care for life and be life-giving people. So I have a Bible project for you, video for you today, and this might be one of my favorites. I don't like to pick favorites when it comes to the Bible project, but this might be one of my favorites. And so I want you to, to watch this video explaining this theological concept of what it means to be made in the image of God. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes, gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day -day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Huh? Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. 
But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So... Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So there are 77 of us who are doing this Bible project, uh, reading the Bible through the year plan on this this app. And you can still join us. You can head to millcitychurch.com slash the story and you can jump in. We're just started on Monday. Um, And this week we watched this video that we just watched on the image of God. And it was Tuesday that it was assigned for us before we did our our reading of parts of Genesis. And, And I watched the scene multiple times where all those swords turn into tools and instruments. I just love it. And so I went back and I watched it multiple times. And then the next day, as I watched this protest morph into this angry mob of people who were so violent, this image came up in my mind of these swords turning into to shovels and to flutes. And as I watched the TV with horror, as I'm sure so many of you did, all I could think is, we are not created for this. And, and I was tempted, like I almost always am, to blame These people are extremists. These are violent people. I'm not like them. I don't think like them. I don't act like them. But when we see overt actions by white supremacists or any other extremist group, when we see hateful symbols displayed like we saw this last week, when we hear overtly racist rhetoric spoken by anybody, including our president, we must remember that we have a choice to continue the blame game, which is very tempting, try to distance ourselves from what we're seeing and distance ourselves from those people. Or we can choose to remind ourselves that this type of ideology, like white supremacy, for instance, touches everything in our world, just like the disruption and brokenness has touched everything, even our own minds, even our own hearts, even as Jesus followers. White supremacy is not just a hate group. It's a pervasive ideology that's bad for everyone, even white people. It's a powerful and evil 
narrative, right? It's a narrative and it's contrary to God's narrative, to God's story. I would say that the reason that the events of last Wednesday could happen the way that it did is not just because of extremism, but because of the more sneaky, insidious ways that we strip each other of our humanity, of, of our image of God, disparaging the image of God in other people, in our neighbors, in the people we love the most, and even in ourselves. Because isn't our inner talk kind of ugly sometimes as well? There's so many narratives in this world that tell us that certain peoples, certain groups, a gender, a certain vocation or different vocations are more valuable or better than others, right? We see those narratives at play all the time. These narratives are contrary to the narrative that we see in God's story. Anytime there's a narrative of a hierarchy of value on the lives of humans, that is disparaging the image of God in one another. And so that's where we find ourselves stuck in the deep trenches of a lot of isms, right? Including racism that affects our world so deeply today and many others. Brian Stevenson, a well-known lawyer and author of the book Just Mercy, maybe you read it or saw the movie that it was based on. Uh, he has a, a great phrase that's really helped me called the narrative of racial difference. A narrative, right? Simply put, this is what it is. A narrative that races of people are different beyond skin color in ways that assign more value to people with lighter skin and less and less as skin gets darker. The narrative of racial difference. This narrative can be found affecting humanity all through history, all around the world and right up to today. The narrative of racial difference still works itself into our lives, right? With overt displays of racism, right down to the more sneaky, insidious ways that we are damaging each other and a lot of us don't even notice it because we're not the people so deeply damaged by this narrative. The narrative of racial difference is directly opposed to the narrative of God. God created all humans in God's image. Male and female, God created us. Adam means human and Eve means life. Right there in their names, it's suggesting that every human ha that has life, every person has this deep value from God. So to be a part of God's redemptive mission, right? That's the part of the story that we're in now. To be a part of God's redemptive mission in this world, we have to fight for the image of God in ourselves and in our neighbors. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the brokenness and sin doesn't get to define our relationships with each other or with God or with ourselves. Part of seeing our story as a part of God's story, right? This is this big question I'm encouraging us to ask. If we're going to see our story as a part of God's story, we have to reject the narratives that oppose God's narrative. And then we have to strive to champion the narrative that God created humans very good because we were created in the image of God. And when we remind ourselves and each other that we are made in God's image, it reminds us that we are created to be life bringers, not life stealers. Those who foster and care for life, who cultivate spaces of life, not disparage life in thought or word or action. We must never stop looking for God's image in ourselves, in our neighbors, and even in our enemies. So this, uh, this is not easy. Perhaps we've noticed, right? These other narratives are so strong in our lives. So it begs this question that I want us to ask. How do we choose every day to look for the image of God in others? How do we do that? It's not really for the faint of heart because we're not talking about just looking for good things like a silver lining or something. I mean, that can be helpful in difficult times for sure. 
This is about looking for the goodness of God, even in difficult times. And I would say in my life, it is a spiritual discipline to look into what is broken and believe that God's goodness is still there and believe that in the end it will be fully restored. So I'm not talking about ignoring pain or suffering or evil because Pastor Michael's going to get to talk about disruption next week. Good for him. Something to look forward to. It's going to be great. We're not talking about avoiding that, but we have to remember that our identity is as those who are made good in the image of God. That is true of us. That is true of the people around us. And when we see that truth and we live into that story in our lives, it changes everything. So I thought I would leave us today with some practical steps. When times are anxious, I know that practical steps are a lifeline for me, and maybe they are for you too. So how can we look every day for the image of God in other people? So we're looking for the image of God, and now I have four more words that start with L to talk about how we can do this. This is from my friend Latasha Morrison. She's a mentor to me. She uh, leads an organization called Be the Bridge. Maybe you've accessed some of her resources. But these are the four parts that she talks about. Listen, learn, lament, and leverage. This is how we can actively participate in seeking out the goodness of God in other people and in the world. So simply, listen. Listen to other people. When we listen to other people and we truly listen, you are able to see God's goodness in them. Also, when we hear other people's pain and suffering as well as their celebrations and we enter into that with them, it's so life-giving, isn't it? It validates their humanity. And in a way, we are validating their image of God. Second, learn. It's okay to admit that there is so much that we don't know. That might be something we have to say again to this crowd, okay? We don't know it all and we never will. And that is okay. There is always more to learn. And perhaps we need to do some deep reflective learning when it comes to our own hearts about how these false narratives that we're swimming around in have affected our own hearts, our own biases towards other people, but also towards how we see ourselves and the value that we place on our own lives and our neighbors. When you feel yourself pulled towards these false narratives because they're so strong, right? These false narratives of human hierarchy, it means there's something missing that you still need to learn. So let's get curious about that because God's story invites us into a completely different narrative. And then there's lament, like we did earlier. The more we learn, if we do that step, about how people are stripping each other's humanity and, and disparaging the image of God in each other, the more we realize there is to lament. And this is an invitation from God to bring to God our sadness, our fear, even our anger at times at the brokenness around us, sometimes bringing to God the sadness and anger we have about the brokenness within us. And God invites us to lament and to repent as a gift to our, our weighed down hearts. And then fourth, leverage. We all have different advantages because of our social location and our life experiences. I mean, every one of us has an opportunity, and I do think it's an opportunity, to look around and to say, how can I, in the spot that I'm in, elevate the humanity of other people in my life? It's not always about directly calling out the image of God in other people, right? If we just called that out awkwardly to my new friends I meet on the Nextdoor app, hi, nice to meet you, I'm Steph, I see the image of God in you. Like that just might be coming on a little too strong. But are there ways that we can do that with our actions and our thoughts and maybe even our words in different ways? These false hierarchy narratives give us different advantages so how can we leverage them to elevate the humanity of others and when it comes to the image of God? Perhaps your job gives you different advantages or your race or your gender, your economic status. We can dismantle these false narratives. We can 
in individual ways, in ways in which it comes to how it's created these false systems, these, these toxic systems that come from these narratives that have been created. Sometimes it's little things. It's easy, as easy as saying, speaking up and saying, hey, we haven't heard from this person yet in this meeting. Or are there some voices that aren't being heard when it comes to this decision that we're making? Maybe it could be something like affecting policies at your workplace or in the political sphere in some way uh, where you have influence. It could be something as important and as simple as teaching our kids how false these narratives are of human hierarchy and impressing upon them that there is a different story that they can choose as well and really thinking about how we talk about those things in front of them. So here's the, the final thing, to, to actively look for the image of God and the goodness of God in other people. We can listen and learn and lament and leverage. Jesus came to become a human in this world and to do that, he divested himself of so much privilege and so much power, right? He lived as a servant leader and then took all this brokenness upon himself when he went to the cross. Jesus' story shows us how deeply God cares about God's image-bearing humanity. Such deep love and sacrifice. And then Jesus invites us to receive that love and to let it wash over our whole lives and then to follow his example of serving other people and not even stopping at equality or fairness, but going further to put other people above ourselves. Jesus' story shows us a distinct and different way than the stories around us. There's God's story, and then there's so many other stories pulling at us and our minds and our hearts. The story you choose to live out of changes everything.